his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll meet some of the people who are the friendly faces to those experiencing homelessness and poverty in Scranton and Wilkes-Barre and give you some ways you might be able to help. We'll also host a debate between two Pennsylvanians who have very different thoughts on the possibility of legalizing recreational marijuana in the state. This winter has been a punishing time for many. Imagine the challenge of the area's homeless during this time and what they face year-round when dealing with the elements. These issues are on the minds of the staff of the Keystone Mission in Scranton, which serves residents in Wilkes-Barre as well. The group relies on community donations to help the less fortunate, and they are looking to expand their services to include a permanent shelter. We had the opportunity recently to learn about their work from their director and a woman who herself understands the challenges of being homeless through her own experience. First, meet John Gleason, CEO of the Keystone Mission. The Keystone Mission was actually established in Scranton and Wilkesbury in 2005. It was the work of three other missions in what we call the Northeast District, like Washington, D.C., up through New England, and our national organization. They were on a sort of a quest at that time to fill some holes around the country where missions were needed or there hadn't been one. And naturally, think about it, northeastern Pennsylvania happened to be a black hole. <laughs> there had never been a mission in this area. Do you know why? Honestly, I don't, because the southern tier, Harrisburg, Lancaster, Reading, I mean, down there, there's been missions for even Allentown. Allentown's 100 and some years old. For whatever reason, there wasn't one up here. So they decided that this was the place to be. And originally, there had been a charter for a nonprofit established, and that was established under the name of Wyoming Valley Rescue Ministries. And then when the mission actually opened in Scranton, living here you'd understand that that doesn't work in Scranton because that automatically means Wilkes-Barre. So then we became a, a, a doing business as the Scranton Rescue Mission. And then over the years, we've changed the name now to Keystone because we're in Scranton and Wilkes-Barre, and we want to be able to communicate in one demographic rather than two different particular cities. But Scranton, we started feeding people off the back of a box truck, literally two blocks from where we are on a Sunday night. Truck would drive up to the corner. We had made arrangements with a banquet facility in the area that did things over the weekend, and they always had really great food, roast beef and things like that left over. And so they would bring it down heated, and we would feed people off the back of of a box truck. That's how it got started. And then a few years later, we were able to purchase the building that we're in on Olive 
Gallup Street. A couple years after that, we purchased a building on Parkview Circle in Wilkesbury. And at this point, both locations, we serve uh, hot meals four nights a week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. In both locations, we have what we call food and clothing distributions, where we allow our guests to come in and shop rather than pre-bag so that they can come in and select what it is that they'd like. In Scranton on Wednesdays, we have what we call kids clothesline, where it's primarily diapers, clothing, toys for infant through about sixth grade for single parents. And in Wilkesbury, we also have, we're very close to Interfaith and Sherman Hills apartment complexes. So we have an elementary school after school program where uh, it ranges between maybe 40 and 60 uh, elementary age school children that come in. We help them with their homework. We're a faith-based organization. So we teach them a little bit about, you know, what the Bible says. We have a program in Wilkesbury that's a long-term men's addiction recovery program that right now we have a little bit of a hiatus on bringing new people in because we're going through some restructuring but that would be a, a like three to twelve month type program for individuals who uh, have decided that you know they want to put their lives back together so we try to help them to do that but one of the biggest struggles we have in both locations is the the homeless population we don't have an emergency shelter emergency shelter by definition means you come in at night and you have to leave in the morning you can't leave anything behind so we're actively looking for a larger facility in Scranton that we would be able to do that and then also probably add meals seven days a week rather than four days a week we're always looking for volunteers we're a faith-based organization that's 100% donation-based we don't uh, receive government money so in turn uh, we have a small staff and uh, uh, thankfully, because of hundreds and hundreds of volunteers, we can make this work. But we're almost always at any given time short in some kind of expertise that we can use, you know, whether it be organization or facility type situation, even with our distributions, you know, people that can organize people in order to make it happen. You know, we're looking in, in the food side of things to try to create a better presentation from a nutritional standpoint. So we're looking at some ways to try to program that. Honestly, the maybe one of the most difficult things is trying to figure out the priority of what need to work on next because there's far more needs than we have uh, ability uh, or finances to, to handle. But with the new building, our corridor is sort of on the river in Scranton from the Scranton Lace Company to the end of South Washington Avenue. For whatever reason, that seems to be where the, the largest homeless population is or even those in need. Those that are in need usually have a car or the ability to go somewhere, so it's not as critical. So we're always looking to try to have a conversation with someone who knows someone who might have a, a building. We're looking somewhere in the 50 or 60,000 square foot type of situation that we can grow into. We don't necessarily need that today, but we do need it so that we don't have to look for another place in three or four years. What has this winter been like trying to meet the needs and demands of, of what's happening right now? You know, right now the weather seems to be pretty nice, but January, if we remember, we had days literally with the wind chill at 35 below. And uh, there's definitely a shortage in, in both cities, actually, for an overnight shelter. But in Scranton, one of the things I did not mention is that we have what we call a day room, so that our dining room is open every day at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we were usually open until 4 or 5 
and then the evenings we served till seven. But when all of this was happening and the shortage was becoming very evident in Scranton, we decided just to extend our day room hours overnight so that at least a person could get off the street. We're not a shelter, we don't have beds, we don't have a shower, but we do have heat and we do have coffee and drinks and snacks and lights so that people could at least come in and get off the street if there wasn't another place you know, that actually was a shelter and had a bed. Can you just tell us a little bit about the, the volume of people that were here when winter was very, very bad and the temperatures were low? Again, this is a dining room where typically we serve between 40 and 60 a meal of people uh, for meals. We had nights where there were as many as 30 people uh, that were here overnight. Uh, now, thankfully, there were, you know, some night, when I say thankfully, thankfully the weather was nice enough uh, where the quantities were less. But thankfully, on the other hand, you know, we had as, enough room to bring 30 people that they weren't, you know, under a bridge or a cardboard box or in a tent in the kind of weather we've had. And, and even now, as the weather's changing, I think what a lot of people don't understand, uh, last week it was beautiful uh, weather, then the next day was 40 or 50, but it rained terrible. So most of our guests coming in the day room, their coats were drenched, just soaking wet. Well, again, if you're on the street, there is no dryer, there is no clothesline. So we always have clothing, food, you know, necessities on hand. So we had the ability to offer each of our guests another coat because two nights later it was eight degrees at night. So, you know, what are you going to do with a coat that's soaking wet and now you're damp? And the same thing, we go through socks all the time, reasonable amount of shoes. We always have hygiene products. There's, there's a lot of physical challenges with our guests that they've had surgeries or they have things that they haven't taken care of and the like. So we always have undergarment needs, you know, uh, even the standpoint of like Depends and things like that and feminine hygiene products, things that a lot of us, again, don't think of that if you're out on the street, you st all of these needs still exist. And at least with the day room, they have the ability to come in and get off the street. We do have, we don't have showers, but we have bathrooms so that those kinds of needs can be met as well as just being able to sit down. In a lot of communities, you hear some resistance to the idea of a permanent shelter. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. And there are all kinds of things that people say about a permanent shelter that it will bring more people. It seems to me by what you've said, the people are already here. There's always a big, big question on the numbers. Um, and numbers are really hard to tell. I mean, even here, we have guests that, have, that they might be regular for three, four months, five months. And then all of a sudden you don't see them and they're gone for sometimes three, four or five months. And then they're back. Um, because again, there's a lot of family issues, you know, sometimes with uh, either the addiction situation or even mental challenges. Uh, there's been stresses on families. And after a while, everybody thinks, well, maybe we can get back together. So they go back home and sometimes it doesn't work. And then, you know, we see them back here again. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, we've had individuals that have gotten a job and they were doing fine. And, but they were on the edge when they got the job. 
and they lose their job and it doesn't take much for them to be on the street again. You know, you miss your rent for a couple of months and you don't have a place to live. You know, the other part of that whole stigma is society has sort of created this stereotypical homeless person that is, is dangerous and uh, mean and, you know, uh, lazy, you know, lots of, of names without any exaggeration. On any given night, if someone were to come in here and help serve a meal, that they would see that it's well over 90% of our guests are extremely thankful, generous, uh, polite. The, the reality of, of a stereotype is, you know, usually it is a small percentage of whatever it is, and there's an element of truth in it in whatever element it is you know if you happen to work every day well you know there's probably someone that you don't care for and someone that you really like a lot um, and so we have the same thing you know the, the reality is that the vast majority of people we serve are very thankful that uh, for what they receive you know and it's not necessarily from us it's from all the people that donate to us you know we happen to be the facilitator but we're here because people are donating clothes and they're donating food and they're providing meals and they're coming in and helping even provide the services that we, we have for our guests. Uh, and that's true in, in both locations. You know, we have a little bit more of, uh, of a, let's say, constant contact in Scranton because of the day room. But, you know, and, and we definitely have a higher percentage of true homeless, like no roof in Scranton than in Wilkesbury. In Wilkesbury, I would say we're more like, you know, close to 90% of the people we serve have a roof over their head. Now, you know, they may not be able to afford their electric bill or their gas bill, but they have a roof over their head. Um, so the needs are slightly different, but we're still meeting, you know, that need, whether it be a hot meal or a, you know, bag of groceries or clothing. Uh, with clothing, everything that comes in, we were actually, because we're so overwhelmed with space or lack of space, we've just started to rent some space to take all of our clothing to do the sorting. So again, we have volunteers and we can use more that come and open all of the bags and sort through the clothes. Decide We will not give anyone anything that we wouldn't wear. So if, uh, if we wouldn't wear it, then it, it does go to rag. And that helps pay for the rent for the, uh, for the facility to do the sorting. But then during the distributions in Scranton and Wilkesbury for that, uh, you can come in and you can choose, you know, the size that you need, male, female, children's, you know, coats. You know, at this point, we have gone through with this kind of weather that we've had, we've gone through a lot of coats. And honestly, the other advantage that this additional space gives us is that we can sort of shelve the seasonal things because we were having a very difficult time, you know, with clothing that was out of season having a place for it. So, and right now is a perfect example because as the season starts to change, well, so do the does the distribution list, you know. Uh, so, um, but every one of those is an opportunity for someone to to help and truly make a difference in in someone's life. John Gleason is the CEO of the Keystone Mission in Scranton. Those who seek out their services encounter a smiling and understanding face that greets them at the door. That's Kim Fitzgerald, also known as Mama. She's part of the comfort staff. She also volunteers a few days a week and holds the title of kitchen manager. Well, March 14th is going to be five years that I have not been homeless. But when I was, I actually was living across the street up in a field in a tent. And at the time when I was homeless, um, I needed a knee replacement. And they wouldn't do it because there was nowhere for me to go recuperate. 
So every day I had to make that choice where I was going to eat. And it was once a day. I couldn't do both. And I was coming to the mission. And when I was homeless, I, I didn't trust anybody. I was depressed. I didn't know anybody. But when I walked in the doors here at the mission, they made me feel wanted that I was a person. They instilled trust back in me in people. Um, I had totally lost my faith because I didn't understand why I was going through this. And we have something called the message and the meal. And before you eat, we have a message. And I started listening to the, the, the different pastors and people that are up there that, you know, instilling again in me, you know, don't lose the faith. Start praying. You're not alone. I mean, you might be alone with human people, but you're not alone that God is with you. And, and little by little, I kept coming back and coming back. And winter started approaching. Um, I was in sandals. I didn't even have a pair of shoes, boots, coat, nothing. And the mission gave me all of that. You know, from the hat, the scarf, the gloves, the, the winter clothes. Um, I had lost everything, everything that I owned. And what I, I always like to say is, please, I, you know, people out there think that you're either an alcoholic or a drug addict or something to be homeless. That's not true. I was none of those. It happened to be a family problem that happened that that made me homeless. Um, and I, I lost everything. I had nothing. And if it wasn't for the mission, honestly, I had gotten pneumonia twice and I almost died. And if it wasn't them providing me with a meal four nights a week, with the clothing, the 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 gloves, the gloves alone, socks, um, bedrolls. I mean, when you're living in a tent in the middle of the winter, <laughs> you're on the ground. So I was able to come get, you know, a bedroll like once a week or every other week and, and pile them up so I wasn't completely on the ground. Um from years ago, I have a fake hip and I have a metal rod and pins and screws. That metal, if you're laying on the ground, you freeze. And that was one of my fears, that I was going to die and freeze to death. Also, um, like feminine products, hygiene products, um, there was the place called CIC, but it was the same people. And if you didn't get there in time, you didn't get a shower. So at least if you came in here and went to the bathroom, you knew you can wash your face, you know, real fast and... They, they made me feel loved. When there was nobody else, I felt loved. And I, I started getting trust back again. Once I did get on my feet, I started, I was volunteering for three years. Once I got on my feet, I wanted to give back for all that the mission did for me. So it's been like three years that I've been volunteering. And it wasn't until recently that I became staff and that I work in the day room with the guests and that it's just amazing because anybody who walks through that door whether they're new to being homeless or they've been homeless I know them from being out there and I know what they're feeling I know what they're thinking and I know what they're going through that I can instill you know not to give up to have faith this is a safe haven for anybody no matter who it is we this is a safe haven and you know what when I was out there, you know, you say hello to a person, people put their heads down. Um, here, no matter what it is that you've done, the pe they'll say, don't hate me, or, or please forgive me, Mama Kim. And you know what I always say? If God forgives, then I forgive too. And I'm, we're here for them to listen to their stories, to, 
you know, just sometimes it's a hug or, or just a smile if someone walks through the door because it does take a little bit to get to know the guests. You know, they want to, you know, kind of figure you out. Can they trust you? And we have people that have been coming here now since five years ago when I was homeless and they, they keep coming back and it's for that comfort and just that little bit of love, the hug that we give to, to talk to the pastor bill that's here, um, you know, in, in, in confidential because, you know, anything, anything is said is confidential and, and to encourage them not to give up, keep the faith. And if we can direct them to any, other organization of where they need to be that we can do that and especially when a new building if we can have those people here to talk to them directly to go in an office a lot of them especially you know if they're having mental problems you talk to them over but they don't realize it's only a couple blocks and they don't get themselves there if we can get that building there is just so much more that we can do for the guests that are out there. For more information on the Keystone Rescue Mission, including volunteer opportunities, or how to donate, visit their website, www.keystonemission.org, or call 570-871-4795. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Pennsylvania has dipped its toe into the marijuana usage pool. Several weeks ago, the state's first dispensaries for those who are medically qualified to use marijuana as medicine opened. Now, Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene De Pasquale has advocated for the legalization and taxation of recreational marijuana. When he appeared on Intercom Station WILK several weeks ago to discuss the merits of this not-yet-legislatively-approved idea, U.S. congressional candidate Joe Peters, who has an extensive background in law enforcement, called in to disapprove of this notion. Peters then challenged G. Pasquale to debate the issue, and the two have done so at Widener University. They both appeared with us on WILK this week for a discussion of the pros and cons of the idea. We began with opening statements from both, with Auditor General Eugene DePasquale speaking first. Look, I've come out with the position it is time to regulate and tax marijuana. I think the it can do a couple things. Number one is it can help reduce our um, opioid addiction. I think that is something that's occurred particularly for our veterans. Um, there's even former Navy SEALs now that have come back from combat and said that they would view marijuana as an exit drug. But it's also clear that in the states that, that have gone down the regulation and taxation path, it brings in significant revenue into the state. Uh, Pennsylvania could look at conservatively about $300 million annually. That money could be used uh, to reduce untested rape kits, better fund our schools, um, alcohol and drug rehabilitation. There's also jobs that go that it would actually grow real businesses. You know, in Colorado and Oregon and other states that have gone down this path, um, they have actually grown their economy as a result of this. Now, I also want to be clear that there are downsides to this, just like there are downsides to almost anything. That's why I believe it's appropriate to regulate and tax. I think if we do this right, we can actually reduce teen access, grow our economy, reduce our opiate addiction, and bring in critical revenue for our state so that we don't have to raise taxes on anyone else and make sure that our schools have our funding. And I think what's also key is that we can use some of that revenue for people that are addicted to other alcohol and, and um, gambling and other narcotics. And the final point is this issue has been 
let's be blunt about this. It's fact is at the federal government level, it's considered a Schedule One narcotic. That needs to change, and we can have an appropriate debate about how why Congress has failed at that duty. But the idea that marijuana is considered as addictive in the federal government as heroin is just insane. In fact, there are probably significantly more downsides to smoking, which is legal. I think we need to regulate and tax marijuana. It'll bring in revenue, help reduce opioid addiction, help us better fund our schools. Joe, uh, tell us about your position on this. Obviously, you don't agree. Uh, I don't, but let me sit. first thank you, Sue and WYLK and your listeners, because this is, uh, as the Auditor General mentioned, uh, a very important debate to have. Uh, and I have great respect for uh, Eugene. I think he's doing a, a good job as Auditor General, and he and I debated this issue on television in Harrisburg at Widener Law School, and I will say, I, I will thank him for what he does for this Commonwealth, and I will also say that uh, he came at this as a gentleman, uh, sort of fervent in his beliefs, uh, but we had the kind of constructive dialogue that I think uh, people in public service uh, have an obligation to have for the citizenry. Um, and, and with that, you know, let me let me preface uh, a brief opening by saying that I come at this after 30 plus years of looking at this problem and working with it. So whatever I say will be from the eyes of someone who's uh, who's done it, so to speak. And uh, and not just the fact of being a street cop on the law enforcement side and working undercover and being chief of the state's Bureau of Narcotics and the state's top drug prosecutor. Um, you know, and I also was a federal prosecutor where I saw the mafia using drugs, breaking their own rules because it was such an attractive economic driver for their business. And then, you know, finally, having spent two years in two very different White Houses, um, last two years under President Bill Clinton, first two years of President George W. Bush uh, as a senior official in the Drug Czar's office or the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Um, importantly, uh, for those that might say, oh, he's a cop, he wants to lock everybody up, most of my time was spent talking to legislators and treatment professionals and insurance companies and doctors and pharmacists. Uh, uh, to come to the right answer and to get our government moving in the right direction collectively. Uh, and frankly, that's why I'm running for Congress. Uh, this is my number one issue, and I think that the nation needs to deal with this. So in conclusion, uh, I'll simply say, with all due respect to Eugene, wrong message, wrong time. And I say that because there are two considerations. One, we have a horrendous heroin opioid problem that's causing 13 deaths a day in the Commonwealth. And we can talk about why legalizing marijuana doesn't help the opioid problem. Uh, and number two, we're just starting. We're two weeks into medical marijuana in Pennsylvania. Before we take another jump and a leap forward into unknown waters, let's see what medical marijuana does in Pennsylvania before we go forward. You know, if you don't like big pharma and you don't like big tobacco, you are not going to like big weed. And we can talk about that. A listener wanted to know about the enforcement of driving under the influence of marijuana and how that would be handled because of the lingering effect of the drug in the system of a user. 
Auditor General DePasquale answers first. Two things. Number one is driving while intoxicated, whether it be marijuana or alcohol, um, is already illegal. Um, so you start off with that. Now, there's no question. This is one where we'd have to work with law enforcement to make sure that we had appropriate uh, testing procedures to make sure that, that someone that is, that's not allowed to be operating a vehicle that's getting pulled over, that it's an appropriate test and that their constitutional rights are maintained, while at the same time making sure our roads are safer. There's no question that that needs to be done. And again, driving while high is clearly unacceptable. Um, and so we would need to make sure that we're cooperating with law enforcement to make sure that the appropriate testing is placed to crack down on the people that do that. Joe? Well, I think, you know, for, fortunately in this debate, we have some Petri dishes. We have some experiments that we can look to places like California and places like Colorado uh, most recently, and even over in Europe, places that have dealt with this problem uh, and have become sort of more uh, generous with allowing use and and looking at data. And if you look at the data, you know, Colorado saw a 48% increase in weekend nighttime drivers being impaired with marijuana. And I think think the statistic that most answers the question that will it affect and will it cause impaired driving and fatalities is that in Colorado, uh, the number of fatalities from impaired marijuana driving, not alcohol, not anything else, have doubled. Okay. Any uh, rebuttal on that, Gene, before we take the next question? Well, just like there was too much drink, drinking and driving in the 70s, and we changed the culture on that, if that is something that develops, I believe that we can, over time, change the culture. I think we can actually do a better job than Colorado did, and that is stamping it out from the very beginning. So, look, any one instance of that is too many. There's no question about it. But people do, unfortunately, still drive impaired, regardless of what that impairment is, and they would need to face appropriate punishment on that. It's just like, uh, you know, we don't ban alcohol sales because of this. I think regular Regulating and taxing marijuana is on the whole significantly a better path, but there's no question that driving while impaired is unacceptable and we would need to crack down on it. Now, I want to uh, give the next question to uh, Joe, but I want you both to answer it. This is also um, from uh, a text message. Would we consider legalizing marijuana if it didn't create a revenue stream for the state? Joe? I think the answer would be no. And I think even those that are tantalized by the notion that, well, it's going to bring in all of this money, I think are astute enough to kind of look underneath the numbers. First off, you know, data shows that wherever it's been legalized, whatever were the revenue predictions uh, on the front end go down to about half. Um, I think also, you know, look at, again, kind of, a petri dish we could look to and look back upon. Look at the tobacco tax. Does does whatever amount of money we get from tobacco does it offset the health care costs and the societal costs that we endure? Uh, I don't think so. Look at alcohol. You know, alcohol causes more damage than all of the other illegal drugs put together in terms of societal costs. People don't realize that. And then finally, you know, Alcohol, if we can use that as a model, brings in about $20 billion of revenue in terms of tax. Now, that sounds good, $20 billion new dollars. What doesn't sound good is the reality that it, it costs us $200 billion in impact, in health care, uh, in treatment, in addiction services, in, in bad parenting, in all of those demographics. So is it worth taking in $20 billion 
and having to spend $200 billion? I don't think so. Okay, Gene. The question was, would we consider legalizing marijuana if it didn't create a revenue stream for the state? I believe it would be it would have a lot of merit, even if it weren't for the revenue stream. Um, when you look at the states that have regulated and taxed it, I think you see a significant reduction in opioid um, addiction. You know, just take our veterans; they're twice as likely to die from opioid overdose as the rest of the population. Sixty percent of veterans returning from deployments in the Middle East suffer chronic pain right now because it's a Schedule One narcotic. They're not even able to get. Um, uh, medical marijuana, even at the VAs. So to me, if we were regulating taxes in Pennsylvania, you would open up the door just for our veterans to get it that are experiencing pain. And two, states that have regulated and taxed it, they've seen a reduction of about 25%, close to 25% in overdose deaths attributed to opioid, again, because of the access to marijuana, which helps people reduce their pain. So to me, the answer to that would be yes. There's no question that when it comes to the revenue side of it, that is certainly um, an appealing side of it, um, but I think there would be merit to it without the revenue. When we return, Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale and congressional candidate Joe Peters discuss detractors of a plan to legalize marijuana recreationally in Pennsylvania and where the money might go versus the cost of implementation of this plan. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. We had the chance this week to hear from two men with opposing views on the possibility that Pennsylvania might legalize recreational marijuana in the future. Our discussion was with Pennsylvania's Auditor General Eugene DePasquale and congressional candidate Joe Peters, who was a police officer and a prosecutor during various parts of his career. We talked about the monetary aspects of such a decision with a question from our listeners. In states where it's legal... I heard schools get money for musical instruments and uh, uniforms from the cannabis industry. Is it true? In other words, Gene, we we get suspicious. You know how we are. We don't want our money going into a big old black hole. And in Pennsylvania, that's been the case with something. So where would this money go? This would be up to the legislature. So you'd bring in about $350 million a year, and it would be up to the legislature to determine it. I believe, you know, I, I outlined a plan that I think would be the best plan, which is you, you basically put about $200 million of that into our schools and basic education for schools that have lost guidance counselors and lost band and lost art and music. You can put, put it, plug it into those schools so they can put that back. And you take the Scranton School District and the financial disaster, you know, people know from my audit there, you could put that back in so the kids don't don't lose opportunities, and you make sure that happens. Then you can take about $50 million of that and use it for alcohol and drug rehabilitation. You can also use another $50 million, use it just for pro- put it into property tax relief. And then also you can use a portion of that to get rid of the, untested, the backlog of untested rape kits. That's what I believe would be the best path. Joe, I, I know you're against it, but how would you answer this question, or how do you see this issue for the, the revenue stream that could be created? Sure. Uh, and you're, we're getting great questions. What sort of tuned-in listeners, uh, no pun intended. Uh, before I answer that, Sue, if I, if I may, um, Eugene mentioned earlier about vets. Uh, believe me, having worked with vets uh, my whole life in two White Houses and around the world, literally, there's, th- there's a debt that we owe them that we will never repay. And if they need medical marijuana, 
if if medical marijuana will help them, we need to fix that in the VA because the VAs are a federal facility and there's some issue of bringing marijuana in. Uh, we need to do whatever we can. Um, and again, we're not talking about marijuana as medicine in this discussion. We're talking about full-blown recreational use. And what I say about the money, and, and, and Eugene mentions um, sending it to schools, you know, we've, we've well intended, though, we've heard these things before property tax relief. Uh, you know, gaming was going to sort of take away all of our property taxes. How did that work? Gaming. Uh, you know, every every gambling casino, when they advertise, has to have a disclaimer at the bottom if you have a gambling problem because we are creating a problem that we have to spend money on to fix. So I guess what I say to that is if we're going to send money to schools, what, what are we doing to those students in terms of using marijuana that we're going to have to fix on the back end? You know, in Colorado, youth drug use, marijuana use uh, in the schools is the number one in the nation for past month marijuana use. Um, Colorado's use is 55% higher than the national average. And that's in a state where you have to be 18. So the message is more availability, a message that it's okay, drives up youth use. So if we buy them uniforms and then we have to counsel them and treat them because they've started using where are we? Oh, Gene, I, I hear you want to rebut this. I heard it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's maybe, I think, three big things. Uh, number one is, I, I hope I'm not piercing the corporate veil and I say that kids already have access to this stuff to begin with. Number two, I believe the legal age should be similar to alcohol, which is I believe it should be 21. But number three, and I think that it's actually, I want to say this, this is a very important debate that I think is below the surface of what Joe and I are talking about here. And I, maybe we, he and I have a different approach to this, but I think that this is actually the, the better, the, the, the real debate we're having. And the things that have a plus and a minus, what's the best way to deal with it? Do you make alcohol and cigarettes and gambling illegal, or do you recognize there's some there's some ups and downs to this stuff, so you regulate it and you try to minimize the damage while accentuating the positive. And so, to me, I've never said and never will say that, you know, rec regulating and taxing marijuana is the, the – there's no downside. It's all upside. I think on the whole, from revenue, reducing opioid addiction, and just recognize reality, it's the right path to go. But I do think below the surface what we're really debating is the things that have a plus and a minus, where there's some popular support for doing it, but there's also some downside. What's the better way to deal with it? And me, it's regulating and taxing is a better way to go because I just think, you know, again, you look at what we did with prohibition. That clearly failed. I also think how we're handling marijuana today hasn't worked and we can do better. All right, Joe, do you want to rebut the rebut? Sure. Um, <laughs> um, the notion that uh, marijuana smoking will affect uh, the opioid deaths uh, is is a fallacy. Uh, and there is a, a RAND study that is dated February the 8th, 2018, so this month, where uh, in, in their own report they talk about what appeared to be the case that, you know, more smoking of marijuana would reduce opioid de uh, deaths. Uh, in recent years, the data is going the other way. And in fact, a marijuana legalization blogger sort of took off on, you know, a little bit of that report and said, aha, uh -huh, marijuana is good for the opioid problem. 
even the Rand uh, authors and editors came back and said medical marijuana laws do not reduce opioid mortality. And they are going to print sort of a follow-on to clarify that misperception that was being created. We also talked about detractors of any changes in marijuana legalization laws. Is the plan, if everything, the detractors of legalizing marijuana uh, does happen, what will happen then? In other words, if we have the worst case scenario, what what do you think would happen in Pennsylvania should we decide to walk down this path? Look at the damage that alcohol has done to our society. Legal drug, um, regulated, has some cultural and health benefits. But it still does more damage in terms of health care costs, bad parenting, workplace absences. Uh, maybe even the better example, and I'm sad to have to make it, is look at the heroin opioid problem. Gina, what if uh, the detractors are right? Then what would happen to this if it were legalized in Pennsylvania? Well, if you do it right, you avoid that scenario and actually accentuate the benefits. Uh, so, look, if the worst-case scenario of any new law happens, probably wouldn't go down that path. And I don't mean that to be flip. It's just, it's just a reality. That's why if you, if you do it right and you study what has happened in the other states that have, that have regulated and taxed it, and you find out what worked and what didn't, Pennsylvania can actually be a model for the country and make, uh, and, and that's what I think we should be doing. All right, Gene, I want to ask you this because somebody suggested this and I just kind of rewrote the question a little bit. We have spent a long time looking at the damage of uh, smoking cigarettes and demonizing their effect. How will recreational marijuana be a sell for people who are looking at the health effects of smoking in a detrimental manner? Well, uh, two things. Number one is uh, cigarette smoking is significantly more dangerous than marijuana. It's actually not even close, just from an addictive standpoint and from a health standpoint. And again, I'm not suggesting that um, it's the equivalent of eating a vegan salad smoking marijuana, but cigarette smoking is significantly more dangerous. And I think what you saw from there, and this is something that, again, through an appropriate legalization process, you do see that you got to make sure that the advertising aren't able to target kids, what big tobacco is able to do. That is something to guard against. So how you allow this to be advertised is critical. How you make sure you keep the access away from kids. You know, now when I go into a grocery store, you go into a, a state store and you buy a bottle of wine, you know, you, you have to show your ID. You have someone who's, who is a legal salesperson who their business license hinges on making sure you sell it to someone who's legally allowed to purchase it. All of those same safeguards need to be put in place for this as well. And if it does, I think the benefits of additional revenue, reducing our opioid addiction, um, and also I believe if done right, you can reduce access. I think all of those positives can be can really be taken advantage of if we do if we do this the right way. All right, uh, Joe, same question. Uh, smoking has been demonized for a long time, the effect on your lungs, etc. How how would uh, recreational marijuana be any different? Uh, m- marijuana has uh, 300 plus uh, toxic chemical components in it. It's got uh, almost 100 cannabinoids in it. Only one of those cannabinoids is psychotropic, and that's THC or tetrahydrocannabinol. Uh, I think the important thing to remember is uh, a bottle of wine is not today's marijuana. Uh, And the potency of marijuana, and and I saw it rising as a street cop, as a state prosecutor uh, in the drug czar's office when I would talk to 
people who were in addiction treatment services around the country. You know what they'd say consistently, Sue? They would say, please don't let kids start on marijuana. Um, and you could use the term gateway or not. Uh, the potency of this drug, you know, we have 60,000 opiate users. The vast majority of them started on marijuana or alcohol. This is not your father's weed, you know, that was 4% THC. This is 10, 20% on an average, up to 30%. This, and the data shows in Europe and, and hundreds of studies in the U.S., that potency grabs the receptors in your brain uh, and, and almost quickly hijacks them. So remember how we used to talk about methamphetamine sort of changing your brain chemistry? The potency of marijuana we're dealing with today does that. So we don't know what we don't know about that marijuana cigarette and its effects longitudinally. Okay, uh, Gina, this does kind of dovetail on that. I'm going to flip it to you first. Uh, This is from a woman named Bonnie. Where would the marijuana come from, government or private? And uh, to kind of dovetail on what Joe said, what about the strength or the potency of this particular marijuana? That's actually two questions, but can you look at that? Yeah, no, no, and I think actually, I know they're technically two, but I think it's all part of the same question. Number one is I do believe it should be private, but regulated by the government. But, uh, you know, I think Joe, in a way, helped make my argument. There is dangerous stuff on the street right now that needs to be taken out, and I think we don't even, when people smoke marijuana today, they don't even know what's in it because they're buying it from, you know, bad street dealers. I think if you clean it up, get it into a, a legal business that's appropriately regulated, you can take that dangerous stuff out of it, and people will know what they're purchasing, but I do think it should also be private as well. That's how I believe it's a better path to go. I think that right now people buying it on the street, and I hope we could all concede now, people are using marijuana today. I, I mean, so whether you like it or don't like it, that's happening today. And kids are getting access to it, adults are getting access to it, and they're buying stuff that is actually significantly more dangerous than anything that would be purchased legally if we do the regulation and taxation the right way. Okay, Joe, you want to take a... Yeah, in the words of a great man, Eugene D. Pasquale, I think you're making my argument for me in the sense that uh, it's it's where we are with the the heroin fentanyl problem. It starts with a legal drug. Uh, And what happens is a black market emerges that undercuts the legal price we've seen in places that have legalized it. Once they have medical marijuana and then they legalize recreational, the bottom falls out of medical marijuana because let's just go get it on the street. We don't need this prescription. We don't need a doctor. We don't need a pharmacist. And and it's the same thing that has happened with the heroin problem. Legitimate pharmaceuticals become the delivery mechanism. People get addicted. Their pills run out. They buy them on the street. They're delivered to that $10 bag of heroin. The same thing will happen here. And there will be a black market because whether you're MS-13 or a local entrepreneur, if the government is selling it at X, you're going to sell it at X minus $4. Then we allowed our panelists the opportunity for closing remarks. I 100% agree with Gene that we need to make medical marijuana, if it benefits them, available to our vets, and we need to do whatever changing of laws that we need to. I worry about big weed 
And just like Big Tobacco grew up that targeted our youth, you know, uh, 35% of the smokers consume 80% of the product. Big Weed will target them. Big Weed is already marketing things like chewable marijuana in gummy bears and in Pop-Tarts. Guess who that is directed toward? Um, Big Weed will focus on the adolescent brain that's developing. The last thing that develops is the reasoning skills, and that's what affects our youth. Let me just close with this. Editorial from the second largest newspaper in Colorado. Five years later, we remain an embarrassing cautionary tale. Five years of retail pot coincide with five years of homeless growths, highest in the country. Drivers, students. Yeah, I have to cut you there because we need to get Gene's minute in. <laughs> so, Gene, hit it. Uh, thank you to w- ILK for having us on. Thank you for everyone for tuning in. And, Joe, thank you for a respectable debate and good luck in your campaign. I support regulating and taxing marijuana because I think it will help reduce our opioid addiction. I think it will bring in critical state revenue. And if done right, it will reduce teen access. I think we can also get some of the bad actors out of the system. I do think this is an important debate to have in this type of forum and others across the state should continue as we move forward, as we try to find the best way, I think, to move Pennsylvania forward on this. I also think it's critical to find a way for vets that have served our public to find a way to let them legally have this when it benefits them medically. That was a discussion we recently had with Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale and congressional candidate Joe Peters about the pros and cons of recreational marijuana legalization in Pennsylvania. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.